Shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. We're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, if you like to follow along, we are in chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 57 through 75. So have you ever had a dream of something? Like you wanted to own something or have a certain position in life or... Like some people dream about having their dream car. A lot of guys do that. Only to find out that when that dream comes true, it ends up being very inconvenient. When, I was, when we were in the U.S., this, more often than here in the U.S., we would often have folks that wanted to move out into the country. They kind of had this idea that they wanted to live away from the town. And we lived in a small town, so it was kind of funny to think away from the hustle and bustle of the town. But they wanted to live out in the country, and they wanted to have like a small farm. And almost every time they did that, they would, they would save up their money. They'd move out into this farm, uh, a couple acres to work on. After about three years, the shine of the dream would come off because living out in the country meant a lot more work, meant a lot more maintenance. Uh, if they had kids, it meant they had to drive into town all the time to take the kids to school or to take them to some sporting activity or if you wanted to go shopping, it was a drive. And usually the people that moved out, into town, out of town, now not all of them, but probably about 70% of them, after about four or five years, they would move back into town because it was just so inconvenient. Uh, and it was kind of sad because, you know, they were so excited when they were moving out. I knew a guy, he, he dreamed of having a sailboat. And it was a dream that he had had ever since he was a young man. He got kind of infatuated by the whole, you know, age of sail kind of thing. And so as he became an adult and, and, he, uh, and he won the argument with his wife, and actually he didn't really win the argument with his wife. His wife just kind of gave up. And he bought the sailboat. He went into debt to buy the sailboat. And he found he had hardly any time to use it because he had to work all the time to pay off the sailboat, you know. And he, and he had to... He had to pay dock fees and maintenance fees. It ended up being very inconvenient. Some people dream of the big house, only to find out that that big house on the hill is expensive. It's expensive to keep it up. Even if you have it paid off, it's expensive to keep it up. So it's hard to take care of. And it's always kind of sad when a dream turns out to be a disappointment. Right? It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a bummer when you, this thing you've wanted for so long ends up being something that when you finally get it and you think you're going to be happy with it, ends up being disappointing. And this was the dilemma that the religious leaders faced at the coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. Because the religious leaders in the time of Christ had been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. And they had been, you know, wanting him to come. And we actually, in Christianity, kind of do the same thing. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We, there's a lot of folks that are kind of like waiting for the end times. Oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. And whenever they talk about that, it kind of goes through my head that, I wonder if you really know what you're asking for. Because, you know, before Jesus comes back, the scripture tells us the end's going to get pretty rough. And I wonder, I think a lot of people just think it's going to happen. We're going to be like lying warm and comfortable in our bed just after a nice big meal. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, come on up to heaven. And we'll be like, okay, here we go. And everything is a nice, smooth transition. It's not going to be like that. And in the time of the, the religious leaders, in the time of Christ, they were hoping for this Messiah to come. They wanted him to come and to overthrow Rome. And he was going to be a king in a sort of secular sense as well as priest, this king priest. But when Jesus shows up, he's kind of inconvenient. 
He's not one of them, for one. Even to this day, there's your very conservative kind of orthodox religious Jewish movements. They'll have a person they call a Messiah every now and then. And they mean it in the sense. They really think this is the guy. Christianity isn't the only one that has weird cults led by people. It happens within Judaism, too. And these messiahs, though, in Judaism tend to be old men. They're very old, and they're from within that religious established order. But Jesus, Jesus didn't come from the religious class. And he's actually quite young. We think he's like only 30 when he begins his ministry, which is just an adult. You've just really become a full-fledged considered adult at that point. He didn't interpret the law of Moses the way that the Pharisees or the Sadducees thought was correct. He didn't stand for their authority. In fact, he seemed to undermine their authority. And he was very inconvenient in that he was gaining the attention of Rome, or at least they were very afraid he would gain the attention of Rome. And at the time, the Jews were under the the boot heel of the Roman government, and the Roman government allowed them a certain amount of autonomy to worship as they wanted to worship, to, to take care of some social laws between themselves the way they wanted to. But the Jews knew you didn't want to get the attention of Rome. Because if you really got their attention and you disturbed what they called the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, then the way the Romans would respond to that disturbance of the peace of Rome is to remove whatever was disturbing it by the sword. And they knew this. They'd seen this. They'd experienced this. They'd seen nations around them experience this. So Jesus, Jesus was inconvenient. And he had to be done away with. And so they arrested him which we read about last week, and they kind of put on a show trial to find a reason that they could say he needed to be put to death. So let's read. This is Matthew 26, starting at verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and this whole Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was kind of a a religious court, and the Romans allowed this to take place. It was like a religious court made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees that would decide civil matters between Jews. The whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore their clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. 
they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? In this passage, we see that the high priest and the other leaders were looking to get rid of Jesus. And the high priest, Caiaphas, is kind of the epitome of a bureaucrat. And he's a person that found Jesus as a threat to his way of life and a threat to his authority. In other words, he was very inconvenient. And the Gospel of John uh, kind of expands this this event a little bit further. John, we, we learn from the Gospel of John that John was actually known to the priestly family. We don't really know how, but he was known to them. So he gets into this discussion. He's in the room when this is happening. And Caiaphas in the Gospel of John has kind of an interesting insight. He says this, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And this is actually before, this is before the, the whole thing happens. He goes, What are we accomplishing? Here's a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there you learn there the fear of the Romans. That he's going to take, the Romans will take a place, their place of authority, but he's also, they will also take away their nation, what, what, what there was of their nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now what's interesting about this is that the Apostle John goes on to say that that Caiaphas, who's clearly speaking here out of pure self-interest, he's not not trying to be in any way kind of, you know, this is best for the country in, in the sense of he really cares about them. He's talking about he doesn't want to lose his own place. He doesn't want to lose his own authority. But John sees within this statement of Caiaphas, which he doesn't make with any kind of sense of prophetic speaking, he sees in it a spiritual prophetic message. And John goes on to say, he did not say this of his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. It's kind of a little interesting side road, which we won't go down today, but you know, it's more than once that God would use, use people who are considered unrighteous prophets in order to say some truth into the world. Another good example is this guy named Balaam in the Old Testament. If you ever know his story, he was an unrighteous prophet. But he was used by God to bless the nation of Israel in spite of what Balaam wanted to do. God does this sometimes because God doesn't really fit into our sense of what is proper or within our box, which is one reason why you need to be careful about trying to put God into a box, be it a philosophical box or even a theological box. Because God acts in ways that sometimes makes us go, well, I wouldn't have done that. And that's kind of the whole point of God sometimes. Yep, you're right. You wouldn't do it my way. Thank God that we didn't do it our way. So who was this Caiaphas guy? Caiaphas was the high priest, and it says in the Scripture he was high priest that year, but Caiaphas was actually a fairly successful high priest. He was high priest for 18 years. When we, when we visit him in this part of the scriptures, it's his, it's his first couple of years as being the high priest. And the history of the high priest is an interesting one if you go back and you read the history because there was this, over, there was this 
uh, revolt that took place called the Maccabean Revolt, which takes place about 450 years before Christ. And we've talked about it before. It's from the Maccabean Revolt that the whole Hanukkah ceremony comes from, the Festival of Lights. And during that time, there was a little bit of Israel that was taken over, and there was a little kingdom of Israel for a little bit of time. And then, then eventually it fails. It lasted about 117, 120 years. Then it fails. But part of its failure was sort of an abdication. It was sort of a negotiated failure. There's a lot of battles. There's this guy named Judas of Maccabees, which his name means Judas the Hammer, which I thought was kind of a cool name. And uh, Judas does pretty well, but then when he dies, things kind of wobble and fall apart. And so part of the compromise was that the Maccabean descendants were allowed to be the high priests. And this is called the Hasmodean dynasty or the Hasmodean dynasty, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And in this, these high priests, they did function as both king and priest. There was, a very, there was a secular function to them, and there was this priestly function. And if you've ever seen, uh, or you've watched, or you've read any history about the intrigues of any royal family, the backstabbing, the betrayals, the, uh, the compromises, the corruption, it was all there in this Hasmodean uh, dynasty, just like it was there in any of the British dynasties or any other royal dynasties that have taken place, all that backstabbing and brothers against brothers and who's sleeping with who. It was the same thing. And so when the Romans reformed the province of Judea into the proper Roman province and they put a governor there, the Romans told the Jews, all right, we are going to appoint who it gets to be high priest. So the high priest, the, the Hasmodean dynasty ended, and the high priests were then appointed by the Roman governors. So you can imagine how the Jews felt about these guys who were appointed, because they're being appointed high priests by a pagan nation, as far as they're concerned. And Annas, who is Caiaphas' father-in-law, was appointed by a Roman governor. And then as the Roman governors would shift, if the high priest and the Roman governor didn't get along, the Roman governors would kick them out and appoint someone else. And Caiaphas had been appointed by the governor that was before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the governor that is there when Jesus goes through his trial. The governor that was before him is the one that had appointed Caiaphas. And Caiaphas' father-in-law was a former high priest himself, this guy named Annas, and he's mentioned a couple times. And Caiaphas is, as you can already kind of see, he is kind of the epitome of a bureaucrat. He is very concerned about making sure that his power and his authority and the authority of the people that, that is supposed to, he's supposed to be supporting, which is the, the upper religious class, that none of that is threatened by Jesus, or by anything for that matter. And so he's a very political guy, and we read about him not just here, but you read about him in the book of Acts, too. He's the high priest during the book of Acts, and he's referred to also in the book of Acts. Like I said, he lasted for 18 years. He was a pretty skillful guy in navigating what it meant to please Rome and to keep Temple Judaism in order. And in 1990, 1990 a tomb was discovered in Jerusalem that had an ossuary. And what an ossuary is, is they, uh, they would lay a person in, in a regular tomb until the flesh basically rotted off, and then they would take the, the bones and they would put them in these boxes, ossuaries, bone boxes. And his was found. It says Josephus Caiaphas on it. And, uh, and so we know, and it's very ornate. So this is a, a person in history that we have physical, tangible evidence of. In fact, his house is still standing. If you ever go to Jerusalem, which would be cool if we could arrange to do that as a church sometime, 
We'd have to have like two or three years ahead of time because it's not cheap. But man, living here, it's not that far to fly. And uh, you can go to the house of Caiaphas. You can go to the very courtyard where Peter denied Christ. It still is there. These things, you know, we have a faith that is rooted in history. We don't have a faith that is rooted in fantasy. We have a faith that's rooted in history. These things happen. And when you go, kind of the, the magical thing or the, the powerful thing when you go to Jerusalem and even Israel is to actually see these things and stand there and go, wow, Jesus stood here. Peter denied Christ right here. You know, it's kind of cool. So anyway, so we, so we know kind of quite a bit about Caiaphas. He's written not just about in the scriptures, but he's written about in extra biblical things as well. And it's interesting that as he faces Jesus, this long-anticipated Messiah, he doesn't want to accept the change that is going to be required in order to embrace what Jesus is about. And when Jesus is talking to this so-called leader of Judaism, he doesn't have much to say to him. He says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? Because Jesus wasn't going to say anything. He, you kind of get this feeling that Jesus really kind of, the, the, uh, the path was already set, the way of the cross, he had already accepted that. He didn't really want to take time to have to explain himself to people along the way, and he certainly wasn't going to waste his energy on people that were just going to argue with him. And so he doesn't really say anything. They have this trial, and Jesus is like, kind of like, whatever. He knows that the path is to the cross. He knows this is unrighteous. He knows there's no real truth here. These guys that come up and say, well, he said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, they know that he was speaking in, in a different sense that, than a literal he was going to break down the temple. But they don't really care about what Jesus really meant. And so he doesn't say anything. But then when Caiaphas brings God's name into it, Jesus responds. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. If you ever had people say, well, Jesus never really says he's God among us. People who say that don't really understand what Jesus is saying and how the Jews understood what he was saying. Because basically, that's what Caiaphas is asking him right here. Are you the Christ? And in their mind, when they say son of God, they mean basically you are in the same authority as God, the same character, the same nature of God. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But I tell all of you, then he kind of says, but, you, but it's still not what you think. It's still not what you understand. Yes, I am the son of God. But you still don't understand what this is about. And he says, in the future you will see the Son of Man, which is how Jesus liked to talk about himself. And he uses that phrase, Son of Man, because it connects back to the book of Daniel, which is what he quotes here, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. And they understood that this was an unambiguous proclamation, that Jesus was saying that he was the very presence of God among them. He uses Daniel as a quote, and they accuse him of blasphemy, and this opens up the way that they can say he deserves to be put to death because Jesus made an unambiguous statement as to his divinity. And so the plan was put into motion to put the inconvenient Messiah to death. So is Jesus Christ inconvenient 
Well, it kind of depends on how you view Christ. For anyone that wants to live under a power and authority other than Christ, be it a nation, be it a, a, a church, a religious system, be it a philosophy, even be it a theology, or be it the individual heart, anyone that wants to live kind of around Christ but not under the lordship of Christ, they will find him very inconvenient. I looked up a, a definition for inconvenient, and it said this, inconvenience is defined as a state or fact of being troublesome or difficult with regards to one's personal requirements or comfort. In other words, if there is a person or an event which requires you to leave your comfort zone or which questions what you think are the requirements for your life to be lived the way you want to live it, then that is inconvenient. And so, is Jesus inconvenient? It depends how you want to live. If you want to live your way and kind of flirt with Jesus, kind of have him around as sort of a religious garnish to your life, then you will find him inconvenient. There will be a sense of times when you feel like, I just can't follow him in this place, or that's not making enough sense for me to really... Uh, believe this or to embrace this aspect of the faith or there'll be a part of your back of your mind that's always thinking I'm not quite right but I'm too scared to get right Christ can be inconvenient if you want to kind of flirt with them but not really live under his lordship and the apostle Paul talks about this all the time this is why the apostle Paul keeps talking about death to self like here's a good example out of Galatians the first so half of the sentence here is very inconvenient. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. That's a statement of inconvenience. I've been taken out of my personal comfort zone, my dreams, my ambitions, the things that I felt which were required, my personal requirements in my life have been killed. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. But the Apostle Paul found, and like millions of Christians have found throughout history, that if they give themselves to Christ and trust Him with those places of personal comfort, or they trust Him with those places of personal requirements, then there's something that is there which is something they weren't expecting. It's different. It's deep. And it's freeing. And that's why he says, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we'll read another passage. The Apostle Paul lived what we would consider in humanistic terms a very inconvenient life. And we'll look at that. And he knew that. He acknowledged that. But he also found that there was a deeper freedom found in living under the Lordship of Christ. And the truth is, Having to face the inadequacies of our lives, which is the result of sin, is inconvenient. When we have to deal with the fact that we are wrong with God because of something we've done, or just even our heart attitude towards others or towards God, it is inconvenient to have to deal with that sin. And it used to be in the Old Testament, it used to be really inconvenient. You had to take some of your wealth, which was your animals, and if you didn't own the animals, you had to buy them, and then they had to be sacrificed. It was a tangible loss, a tangible inconvenience. Cindy and I used to live in Lesotho, which is in southern Africa, and the people's wealth there wasn't in money. It was in cattle. 
And, in one of the, and when one of the cows died for whatever reason, they would have these cows and they would try to have them live for a long, long time because that was where their wealth was. And we lived in this area that was very mountainous. And one, one day I was uh, in class, I was, te- I was a teacher, and this guy came running into the classroom and he was in a bit of a panic because the school cow had fallen off a cliff. And they had to go and make the best of this situation. And so all the kids, before the cow could you know, rot at the bottom of the cliff, they had to run down this cliff, and classes were over. And, and, and the kids thought it was great fun. You know, like, woohoo, no school. And they just kind of ran off and went down the cliff. And about, you know, a couple hours later, they all came up carrying big old hunks of meat over their shoulders, singing, we are going to eat meat today. And uh, they were all happy about it. But the school, it was a loss. It was a big loss for the the school, to have the school cow, one of the school cows, fall off the cliff. So in the book of Numbers, when it talks about sacrifice, it says, the Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites, when a man or woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to God, which is interesting that in the Old Testament, they also saw if you sin against one another, you sinned against God. That person is guilty and must confess the sins he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong. And in the Old Testament, if you've read it, you know there's all these legal stuff back and forth. If you do this, you do that. If you, if you did this, this is the thing. And then you add to it one-fifth of it all and give it all to the person who was wronged. It was costly. However, we also see in the New Testament, before this crucifixion of Christ, that when Christ would come into a person's life and offer to them a different way of life, offer to them a chance to be brought back into the fold of God. Some of those people responded in such a way that they were willing to do not just what the Old Testament required, but more. A good example is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was this tax collector, and people hated him. The people saw tax collectors as kind of working for the Romans, so they were traitors to the nation. People hated paying taxes back then. You know, what, you know what the horrible weight of the Roman tax was upon the people at its highest point? It was a tax rate of 10%. And people were freaking out and going to war. I wonder what they would say if they had to live in Germany, huh? <laughs> but Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But he found Christ, and Christ embraced him and went to his house and ate with him. And then Zacchaeus just kind of stands up and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He's kind of looking back at this numbers, except he's so thankful for the fact that he's accepted. And he's willing not just to pay back one-fifth on top of what he cheated, but four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of God came to seek and to save what was lost. And that salvation for Zacchaeus was sealed upon the cross. And now after Jesus' death and resurrection, that inconvenience of sin certainly is made easier to deal with because we don't have to go sacrifice a cow. We don't have to give a certain amount out of our bank account. Tithing is not paying for your sins. What we have to do is acknowledge the fact that we have sinned and put our faith in the price that Jesus paid for that sin. And you know what? The sad fact is millions of people have heard the gospel of Christ and have found that hurdle to be too high to go over. 
that they cannot accept the fact that they have sinned. And if they can accept the fact they've sinned, they will not accept that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was enough to pay for that sin. And people have all kinds of different reasons for that. But one of the main reasons is they don't want to be beholden to Christ. They think somehow that if they accept what Jesus Christ did for them, that they are beholden to him. And you know what? They're kind of right. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you just can't pick and choose what it is you want to follow from that. You have to follow him. You take the whole thing, not part of it. And one of the soft messages of the church, and it's part of the church I've been a part of too, is that we basically tell folks, all you got to do is say kind of to the sky, I'm sorry, and you're saved. That's not what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ is death to self so that you live in a different way. And the way you live is you live not for yourself, but for Christ. And so in that sense, he's a little bit inconvenient. Because a lot of us, a lot of people, I think there's millions of people that are going to go to hell who have heard the Gospels because they didn't want to believe that they themselves were sinners. But the Scripture tells us if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. Don't let pride get in the way of your salvation. I know sometimes, especially this particular culture, I really appreciate a lot about Germany. I don't want to pick on Germany, but in Germany, we all know there's this thing about whose fault things are, right? If something happens, whose fault is it? If there's a, if there's a scratch on a car, whose fault is it? If there's something that goes wrong, whose fault is it? We want to figure out whose fault things are. And that can kind of instill within us this idea of, of self-preservation. I, want to, I don't want to have to admit I did anything wrong. So we're going to figure out whose fault it was. Something goes wrong in the business. Before we fix it, we've got to figure out whose fault it was. And that can instill within us this idea of fearful, being fearful about admitting fault. Fearful about admitting something that I did was wrong. And I just want to talk to folks who are in that place of fear. Look at this scripture. If you claim without sin, you're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in us. But look what happens if you confess your sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. The price has been paid. You're not going to have to pay in your blood. Jesus did that for you. The price has been paid. All you have to do is be honest with yourself. But that is a hard ask sometimes. Now, it's true. Following Jesus sometimes is very inconvenient. It can be inconvenient physically as well as spiritually. The Apostle Paul lived a very inconvenient life. And there's this passage in Philippians. He just kind of goes off on it. And he says, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my prophet... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, for whose sake he lost personal sense of righteousness, for whose sake he lost his titles, for whose sake he lost a lucrative future in the religion business, for whose sake he lost his sense of pride as being a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what he found, well, let's read what he found. I consider them to be rubbish, and rubbish is cleaning up the Greek. He uses a much stronger word, what he considers it to be. That I may, be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he says something which I think a lot of us go, hmm, because right now a lot of us are with him there. Okay, I'll, you know, I'm going to find a righteousness that isn't by my own because I know that I can't do it myself, but I want to find it that comes from Christ. And then he goes even deeper. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he kind of backs off. This is, he's going deep there, and he comes back up for air a little bit. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. That little phrase, you know, be press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me, it's very inspirational. You'll find it on lots of coffee cups and T-shirts and stuff like that. But people don't realize the depth of what it's saying. Paul is saying that he had lost everything. He was taken out of his comfort zone. He was taken out of his personal requirements for life. And all those things that he thought gave him comfort and all the things that he thought he required in order to live a successful life. All those things were taken. And he's okay with it being taken. He considers it to be, well, this particular translation says rubbish compared to what Christ is giving. And so the question then for us becomes that question, are we willing, whoops, are we willing to press into the inconvenience of Christ? Are we willing to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of you? Because if you are wanting that, and I hope you do, you're going to find that you cannot remain the same person you are and take hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. You're going to have to do some self-reckoning. And it's not a one-time deal. It's a self-reckoning you'll have to go through the rest of your life. Are you willing, for example, to press into the inconvenience of forgiving others? One of the most inconvenient things we're told to do is to forgive one another. And it is no fun forgiving one another sometimes. It's inconvenient, not just practically, but to our soul. But we're told to forgive. In fact, the scripture says we are forgiven by the same amount we're willing to forgive. Yikes. Are you willing to press into the inconvenience of being a peacemaker? Having to enter back into people's lives that have hurt you, wounded you. I struggle with this a lot. I'm not a, I don't like confrontation. But when I'm hurt, I tend to just kind of back off and stay backed off, like forever. And so I have to often struggle with, do, God, do I have to push back into this? 
Do you want me to push back into this? I don't want to push back into it. I find it inconvenient to my soul to have to push back into a place, especially if it was a place of hurt. Are you willing to press into the inconvenience of the reality of your sin and confess your sin in order to receive new life? You know, when, when we, we, we'll often talk about praying the prayer of David, it says, search my heart out, O Lord, and if there's anything that offends you, you know, bring it to my attention. But are you really willing to do that? Are you willing to hear from God? I love you, but this part of your life is messed up. Because trying to live as a Christian without Jesus as Lord, you're going to find it extremely inconvenient. Trying to say, I'm a Christ follower, but I'm not really going to live under his lordship, either one or two things will happen. Well, both things will probably happen. One, Jesus, if you really did give your heart to Christ at some point and you said, you are my Lord, Lord means Lord, your master, and Jesus takes that seriously. And if you're in this place as a Christian and you've decided you're going to take back that which you had given to him, Jesus is like, no, that's not going to happen. And what are you going to find in your life? I will guarantee you what you'll find is you'll find everything starts to get inconvenienced. Things just aren't working the way you want. And if you keep persisting in that, then what God does, and you see it in the Bible, he does it to Pharaoh. He'll just give you back over to it and say, fine, go down that road and let's see what happens. And it will be miserable. I'm just telling you, I have enough experience in it myself. The other thing that will happen is your faith will become very unfulfilling. Your faith will start taking on a legalistic aspect. Your faith, instead of really submitting into your relationship with Christ and taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of you, will be all about taking off, checking off some boxes so you can feel good about yourself. And that is a dry and lifeless faith. And some of you have been there. Some of you are there. Because all, we all flirt with this. There's a reason why we're told in, the, in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God, because as a living sacrifice, we choose to get up on that altar and die to self. But sometimes we choose to hop off the altar and live for self. So we have to get back on there. And if you're in a place of inconvenience in your faith, a dryness, where Jesus is a concept that you definitely believe, but you're finding hard to live, then consider, maybe there's a place that you need to confess before God. A place where you're holding on to yourself, like Caiaphas. Wanted to hold on to his position, hold on to his authority, and have found Jesus too inconvenient to live. The question for us is, do we, are we willing to admit that our lives without Christ are too inconvenient to live without him? And if we are willing to live with him and for him, you may have a life like the Apostle Paul, which was shipwrecked, and he went through floggings and beatings. It was an inconvenient life. But he found in there a purity of freedom and of hope that kept him going no matter what. And that's there for you too. So press forward and take hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. May you live with the convenient Christ. Convenient in the sense that under him you are free. Because those who have been made free in Christ are free indeed. And all those weights and fears will be off your shoulders. And you can live a life which is pointed towards the significance of eternity instead of just the insignificance of the temporary.
and it will be worth it. It will be truly good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the challenge that you are. And sometimes that challenge is hard to reckon with. It's hard to live with. And that's no surprise to you. You lived with the challenge of your own challenge, the challenge of the Father and having to go to the cross. And we read about it last week. You know, if there's any way around this, you were willing to take it. But you knew you had to enter into that inconvenience of death and being brutalized and tortured so that we could have life. And may we have your courage when it comes to living in a place of convenience and inconvenience. A courage to recognize our sin so that we can have the convenience of forgiveness. The courage to recognize that there are places in our lives which we hold tight away from you. So that we can recognize, so we can have the convenience of freedom. And maybe a door open into our life that we never expected to have open. A hope that goes beyond just wishful thinking, but of expectation, of knowing that you are the living God and that we can follow you and trust you. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name, knowing that there are some folks here and we all have different places where, if truth be told, none of us are without sin and there's places we still hold on to. And we don't want to be in that place of deceiving ourselves or making you out to be a liar. So we do. I pray for us that we would have that courage to delve into our soul, to have you lead us there by the Holy Spirit so that we can come out of it closer to you and more like you and more free from the fears and anxieties and the expectations of the world. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.